Chapter 8 of Short Stories for Colored People Both Old and Young by Silas X. Floyd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Self-Help If there was one idea for which more than any other the public school system should stand, it is the idea of self-help. Self-help is the best kind of help in the world. One cannot learn this lesson too early in life. Even little children, three, four, five, six and eight years old, should be taught to work. Any little child is just as capable of doing the little things in work as he is in play. Why should not the little girl be taught to trim and wash the dress of her doll? Why should not the little children be taught to sweep up the dirt that they have scattered in play? Why should they not be taught to remove the dishes from the table, brush up the crumbs, set back the chairs, pick up chips, put the kindling wood in its place, bring the potatoes in from the garden, help to pick over the berries, and so forth. We might argue this question from now until doomsday, and nobody, I think, would be able to give any good reason why children should not be taught to do the little things. Children who are accustomed to having everything done for them by others are very soon beset with the rust of laziness and the canker of pride. Whereas, on the other hand, if children are taught to help themselves as soon as and as much as they are able, it will tend to improve their faculties, and will, at the same time, have a good influence upon their dispositions. Childhood and youth are periods of life which materially influence all of its following periods, and whether the earlier years of one's life be passed in idleness or indolence, or in well-directed industry, is a point on which greatly depends the worth or the worthiness of human character. Where is the man who guides his affairs with discretion, or the woman that looketh well into the ways of her household, and yet was not in some measure imbued with industrious and provident habits in early life? On the other hand, who that has been treated until the age of fifteen or twenty like a helpless infant, and had every want supplied without being put to the necessity of either mental or bodily exertion, was ever good for anything afterwards. The tendency of age is by far too much in the direction of keeping our young boys solely for the purpose of loafing about the streets, or standing around the soda fountains on Sunday, and our young girls for parties, social entertainments, picnics, excursions, and the like so that by the time our boys and girls reach manhood and womanhood, they despise honest labor and are afraid to engage in real hard work. A young woman may know how to read and write, may understand grammar, history, and geography, may sing sweetly and play the piano well, but whatever else she may know or may not know, if she does not know how to bake a whole cake of bread, make her little brother or sister a pair of pants or a plain dress, she is only half-educated. In fact, every young woman should not only know how to perform every duty connected with the household, but every young woman should take some part in household work. No girl need tell me that she really loves her mother if she is willing to leave to her mother the work of washing the dishes, sweeping and scouring the floors, caring for the little children, doing the Monday washings, the house-cleaning, and the like, while she devotes herself to pleasure, novel-reading, social calling, butterfly parties, or playing ragtime music or singing ragtime songs. 
the home and the public school are the two great agencies which are jointly engaged or which should be jointly engaged in teaching children to help themselves if children are taught as boys and girls to think for themselves speak for themselves and act for themselves when they are old they will not forget the precious lesson and will be less likely to become burdens on the community the highest ambition of every american man and woman should be to be of some useful service to the world and the first step will be taken toward this noble end when we have thoroughly learned the value and importance of the lesson of self-help first learn to help yourself and then you will be able to see more clearly how to help others aiming at something it is true boys and girls that it is what you hit not what you aim at that counts but nevertheless it is a very important thing to take the right aim the man who aims deliberately at the center of the target stands a better chance a hundred to one than the man who shoots without taking aim so in life that boy or girl who has a purpose who is aiming at something will be more successful than those boys and girls who have no plans and who aim at nothing it is not sufficient in the moral world to aim at something but every boy and girl should aim at the best things the best and the highest things in this world are the unseen things the eternal things the things that will last forever money is a good thing but there is something higher than money a high position in the business or professional or political world is a good thing but there is something higher and better than office and position character is the grandest the highest and the best thing in this world we include in this one little word character a world of things honor uprightness speaking the truth dealing fairly with people being willing to help the lowly and unfortunate paying your debts promptly these things and many other things like them are included in the one word character and these are the things that are worth while in this world these are the things that every boy and girl should aim at it may not be possible for every boy and girl to become a millionaire it may not be possible for every boy and girl to fill high offices in this world or succeed in large business enterprises but one thing is certain every boy can be a good and true boy every girl can be a noble and beautiful girl beautiful as to conduct as to words and deeds i mean good boys are the fathers of good men pure girls are the mothers of pure women for what after all is a boy and what is a girl what is a man what is a woman i will tell you a boy is a little man that's all and a man is a grown-up boy a girl is a little woman that's all and a woman is a grown-up girl it is important then that boys and girls should aim at the right things the good the true and the noble things early in life what boys and girls aim at in nine cases out of ten they will reach as men and women and to help you in taking the proper aim early in life i am going to give you something to aim at let every boy and girl make this little motto his rule in life know something know it well do something do it well and be somebody the black sheep of the reynolds family 
Will Reynolds was the black sheep of the Reynolds family. He knew it and felt it, because he had been frequently slighted and treated with contempt by his relatives. The only person who never lost faith in him was his mother. She always felt that there was something good in her wayward son, and often said that it would show itself some day. But Will's mother died in the early stages of his backslidings. Will's father married a second time, and the boy, finding it impossible to get along with his stepmother, left home. He went from bad to worse. Being arrested on the charge of drunkenness and vagrancy, he sent to his two brothers, who were prosperous brokers in D Street, asking them to pay his fine. Word came back that they would not interfere in his behalf. His brother sent word that he had brought the trouble upon himself and he must get out of it the best way he could. Will was sent to the workhouse for six months, and nobody's hand was raised to help him. While he was serving his time, his only sister, a young woman not yet grown, died. He knew nothing of it until about a month after it occurred, and then he read the account in an old newspaper which he had borrowed from a fellow prisoner. The news of his sister's death deeply affected him. His sentence was shortened by one month on account of his good behavior. The first thing he did on coming to the city was to visit the family lot in Myrtle Hill Cemetery. He carried with him some wild flowers and green leaves, being too poor to purchase a floral offering from the dealers in such things. With uncovered head, he knelt and placed these tokens of respect on the graves of his mother and sister. This done, he stood in silence for a moment, and then wept like a little child. While riveted to the spot, he made a solemn vow that he would quit the old life and make a man of himself. It's in me, he said to himself, and I'm going to prove it. Slowly he turned away from the sacred place. He went directly to the offices of his brothers. He had been furnished with a new suit of clothes, according to custom, upon leaving prison, and so made quite a decent appearance. He found his oldest brother, John B. Reynolds, seated at a desk in the front office. He entered at once and said, "'Well, John, I suppose sister is dead?' "'How dare you!' exclaimed John, rising to his feet. "'How dare you to speak of Annie as your sister! You jailbird! You miserable convict! Get out of here this minute! Leave this room at once, and never set foot in it again!' There was fire in the man's eye as he spoke. Will attempted to speak, but was not permitted. With tears streaming down his cheeks, he left the room. He had gone to tell of his new determination and ask for another chance, and this was the reception which he met. On his way down the steps, he came face to face with his other brother, Thomas Reynolds. Thomas tried to pass without speaking, but Will intercepted him. "'Tom,' he said, "'I'm your brother still,' I'm not asking help now. I only came to tell you that I'm going to do better. I thought you would be glad to hear it. I want to hear nothing from you, said Thomas. You've disgraced us forever, and you can go your way. We don't want anything to do with you. We don't want to see you again. Will went forth into the street, weeping. Thirty years have come and gone since Will was driven away from the offices of his brothers. What changes have these years worked? 
Soon after leaving prison, Will was a constant visitor at the railroad men's branch of the YMCA. Through the secretary of the association, he soon secured a place as a day laborer in the machine shops of the Big Bend Railroad. After securing regular employment, he went to live in the YMCA building. At the close of his first year's service with the railroad, he was promoted from a common laborer and made an apprentice. After four or five years, he had learned the trade and was receiving the daily wages of a machinist. After twelve years with the company, he was made the master machinist. At the end of fifteen years' service, he was made superintendent of construction. Five years later, he was made a division superintendent. At the expiration of more than twenty-five years of faithful service, Will Reynolds was able to write after his name, general manager of the Big Bend Railroad. He had also been married for several years and was the father of five children. Will's father and brothers lost sight of him for nearly twelve years, or until the papers announced his appointment as master machinist of the Big Bend Railroad. They suddenly awoke to find that their conclusions that he had probably long since died a drunkard's death, or had gone off as a tramp and had been killed, or was again serving a sentence in prison somewhere, were wrong. The same week that Will was made superintendent of construction of the Big Bend Railroad, the newspaper spread all over the country the news that Colonel Oliver P. Reynolds had committed suicide. According to their way, the papers gave all the sickening details of the tragedy, together with the whole family history. They said that Colonel Reynolds had been driven to suicide by his wife. They said that she was much younger than he, that she was extravagant, that she was a leader in gay society. They told how, on her account, Colonel Reynolds had driven his son away from home fifteen years before. They declared that the old man's life had been a hell to him, and that his wife had brought him almost to the verge of bankruptcy, and in order to escape facing open disgrace, he had murdered himself. When Will heard of his father's death, he hastened at once to the city, but was denied admission to the family residence and had to attend the funeral in the little church around the corner, not as a member of the family, but merely as an outsider. We are not concerned in this story with the fate of Will's stepmother. But as to Will's brothers, well, the crash came eight or ten years after the death of Colonel Reynolds, or a short while before Will became the general manager of the Big Bend Railroad. John B. Reynolds and Thomas Reynolds, members of the firm of john b reynolds and brothers had been arrested and placed in the tombs charged with misappropriating one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars of trust funds again the family history was rehearsed in the newspapers the papers did not fail to recall the suicide of colonel reynolds nor did they fail to tell how these two brothers had earlier in life turned their backs on a younger brother will read the papers and saying to his wife well mary perhaps they'll be glad to see me this trip he went immediately to offer his services to his brothers he had prophesied correctly john and thomas were very glad to see him they had no friends among those high in financial circles because they had for many years conducted their business in such a way that businessmen had no confidence in them they had no credit and could get nobody to go on their bonds 
Will took in the situation at a glance. He had been thoughtful enough to bring along with him the leading attorney of the Big Bend Railroad, and he put matters straight away into his hands. Bail was arranged, the brothers were released, and the lawyer then turned his attention to the prosecutors. It was discovered that almost half of the amount stolen was the property of Simon B. Nesmith, president of the Big Bend Railroad. When Will Reynolds and the lawyer found that their own superior officer had been so heavily hit by John B. Reynolds and brothers, they came near fainting. Fortunately, Nesmith, when he heard the whole story, agreed not to prosecute, and not only said that he would be satisfied with any settlement that the railroad's attorney might arrange, but also volunteered to see the others concerned and use his influence in having them do likewise. In a short time matters were adjusted, and John Reynolds and Thomas Reynolds were saved from prison. But they lost all their earthly possessions, and their brother, the black sheep of the family, had to secure them for the sum of $40,000 besides. John B. Reynolds and Thomas Reynolds came to their senses. It was their time to cry now. Amidst great sobs, they said, We treated you wrongly, Brother Will. We ought to have helped you many years ago. We are so sorry we didn't, and it was such a small matter, too. But Will said, Don't talk about the past. I'm your brother still. Go and do as I did. Start over and make men of yourselves. You'll have enough time. That's all I ask. THE HOLY BIBLE I heard a minister say the other day that a mother had not necessarily done much for her boy because she had brought him a nice Bible and put it in his trunk when he was about to leave home and seek his fortune in the world. I think it wrong for anybody, minister or what not, to indulge in such loose and flippant talk. The effect is bad, always bad, and no hair-splitting, and no higher criticism, and no curiously ingenious explanations can mend the matter. As for me, give me the old-fashioned mother who sends her son out into the world with a Bible in his trunk, and give me the old-fashioned boy who reads that Bible every night with tears in his eyes, as he thinks of the old folks at home and of their simple lives devoted to Jesus Christ. Give me the man, woman, or child, whose hands touch the Bible reverently, instead of slinging it about as a dictionary or some common dime novel. Give me the plain old fellow who quickly takes leave of that circle in which critics are proceeding to ably explain away certain chapters of the Bible. As for me, I want no new theories about the Bible, no new versions, no new criticisms. No man has a right to weaken the faith of others. No man has a right to knock away the staff that supports the crippled wayfarer. And no man has a right to tell an aged mother that it does no good to give her boy a Bible unless he can suggest a better substitute. Destroy the old-fashioned idea concerning the Bible, and we shall have a nation of infidels defying God, defying the law, and repeating the licentious and horrors of the French Revolution. We should make the Bible first in all things. Make the Bible first in the family, in the Sunday school and church. Make it first in state and society, and we shall have a republic that will grow brighter and brighter as the years come and go, and then we shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace, and the mountains and hills shall break forth before us into singing, 
and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Andrew Carnegie's Advice to Young Men Do not make riches, but usefulness your first aim, and let your chief pride by that your daily occupation is in the line of progress and development, that your work, in whatever capacity it may be, is useful work, honestly conducted, and as such ennobles your life. Whatever your salary be, save a little, live within your means. The man who saves a little from his income has given the surest indication of the very qualities that every employer is seeking for. The great successes of life are made by concentration. Do not think you have done your full duty when you have performed the work assigned you. You will never rise if you only do this. You hear a good deal about poverty nowadays, and the cry goes up to abolish poverty, but it will be the saddest day of civilization when poverty is no longer with us. It is from the soil of poverty that all the virtues spring. Without poverty, where will your inventor, your artist, your philanthropist come from? There are three classes of young men in the world. One starts out to be a millionaire. Another seeks reputation, perhaps at the cannon's mouth. A third young man, who will be successful, is he who starts out in life with self-respect and who is true to himself and his fellow men. He cannot fail to win. End of chapter 8